words. They come and they go. They're carried on the breath and, and they seem to sort of dissipate in the air. Words matter. Words count. True faith and true wisdom, true humility will be demonstrated by care and control in what we say. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we continue our way through the book of James. Our series is called Doers of the Word. And Jonathan, as we camp out for a little bit in James chapter 4, he again has us coming back to the words, back to our tongue, back to what we say. It seems as if this is something that James keeps just wanting us to understand. He keeps bringing it back over and over again. He certainly does, and I think he recognizes that this is a major area of temptation, of weakness, even of sin among those who profess faith in Christ. So he, he really wants to encourage us and exhort us to be careful in what we say, and, and in particular, what we say about one another and to one another. And as we reflect upon this, you know, I think we will find that this is often an area of real weakness in Christian community. We can be doing all kinds of good and useful things, but in the background there can be unkindness of speech to one another and about one another, and it just ought not to be so. And James is gonna James is gonna challenge us and he's gonna help us in this area. All right, so let's look at what he says. Open your Bible to James chapter four. We're looking at verses eleven to seventeen. Our message is called Speaking in Humility and Faith. Here is Jonathan. When we last left James in chapter 4, a little bit earlier in chapter 4, he was warning us against a worldly attitude, you may remember, that seeks to promote self above all, a worldliness that is willing to fight others and even trample others to get one's own way. And he urged us to learn humility before the Lord. That was the final call of the previous passage there in verse 10 of chapter 4. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. James now turns to apply those principles to an area of our lives that he knows is important. He's spoken of it quite a lot before, an area that we can't really ignore or avoid, but an area where we might prefer not actually to be challenged because it's pretty tough to control this area of our lives, and that is the area of our speech. James wants to teach us how to speak how to use our tongue in a way that is thoroughly unworldly, in a way that is thoroughly consistent with our faith, in a way that is thoroughly humble. Now, right away, James moves into the territory of speech, and as he considers that and encourages us to consider our speech, we know that a challenge is coming our way. We know that this will likely cause us a little bit of discomfort. It will likely challenge our patterns of behavior. It will likely call us to repentance. I think we very easily take matters of speech lightly when it comes to our own personal discipleship. I don't know if you're like that, but I think I am. When we come to think about our own godliness, you know, words, they, they, they come and they go. They're carried on the breath. And, and they seem to sort of dissipate in the air. And unless we happen to be near a microphone, as I find myself near a microphone from time to time, our words often leave no trace and no record. 
We tend to imagine, I think, that other areas of godliness matter a little bit more, areas of godliness that are a bit more visible or leave more permanent marks. But the Bible would tell us, and James would impress upon us, words matter, words count. True faith and true wisdom, true humility will be demonstrated by care and control in what we say. And here in these verses, James would teach us humility in our speech in two areas in particular, our words about one another and our words about the future. Those are the two areas of focus. He calls us first to speak humbly about one another. Verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Just a small handful of words there in our English translation. I think that's eight words. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Just a few words, but you know, I believe if we really understood and heeded and lived out those few words in a consistent way, what a different people we would be. What a different church we would be. I mean, can you just imagine it if we were consistent in this? Now, James is in no way naive about the reality on the ground with this kind of thing. He was in a church, part of a church, connected to a church that had some quarrels, a church where people were evidently not speaking carefully, not speaking humbly, not speaking kindly or well of one another. Remember the question that he raised at the start of the chapter, there at the beginning of chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He asks that question because there were obviously quarrels and fights among the people of God back in chapter 3 where James taught on the dangerous power of the tongue, he spoke of its poisonous potential. Verse 9, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. You see, James, he's seen this happen, even in the context of Christian community, even in the context of the church. And the truth is, of course, so have we seen it. If we've been part of Christian community for any length of time, if we've been believers any length of time, we've seen it. And it's so easy, isn't it? So easy to speak evil of one another and to do so unthinkingly, even to do so actually under a guise of supposed godliness. We're rather good at it. You know, a coffee between friends from church you know, it turns to the subject of, of some other people, some other believers, some other brother or sister in Christ. And the question is, is raised perhaps sort of in a whisper, rather gently, rather carefully. Did, did you hear of the situation with so-and-so? How very difficult that that's happened in their family uh, with the kids. Oh, yes, I'm praying for them. Oh, me too. Of course, you know, you could sort of see it coming, couldn't you? the trouble. I, I mean, the lifestyle, you know, the priorities. You saw it. I saw it. We both did. Of course we did. No, I, I mean, it wasn't wise. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to say it was her fault. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to blame him exactly, but, but they need to take some responsibility, don't they? Oh, yes. Honestly, it wasn't God. No, it wasn't wise. No, they've been their own worst enemy, actually, that's for sure. <laughs> and on and on it goes, right? And down and down it descends. And a conversation that begins under a guise of prayerful concern lands in a place of gossiping malevolence. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers, says James. 
One commentator suggests, and just see what you make of this, he suggests that in the church we are often guilty of this kind of speech in three areas in particular. I'm going to quote him. I thought it was rather good. He says, in judging the motives behind others' words or actions in church business, supposing that we know their motives and speaking to their motives. That's the first one. Uh, Next, judging how others spend money. And, And next, judging how others are rearing their children. Does that sound familiar in any way? (laughs) I think he's on to something. We easily justify it. If we start down that track, we tell ourselves, you know, it's about prayerful concern. Oh, it's prayerful concern. Or it's a, you know, it's a demonstration really of our discernment and our wisdom and spiritual maturity that, you know, we can see things in the lives of others that they're just blind to and we, we turn barbed comments into a kind of virtue somehow. We try and place a, a veneer of godliness over it. We kid ourselves and maybe others too, but James warns us against it. And now he tells us why it's a problem, why it's sin, why it's so wrong. Middle of verse 11, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Here's what you are doing with the the critical, the judgmental, the mean-spirited, the gossipy uh, comments toward one another. Here's what it amounts to, says James. It amounts to speaking against God's own law. It amounts to judging the law itself. Now, how is that so? That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, isn't that a little bit of an overstatement, a bit of hyperbole, a bit of drama maybe to make the point? Well, no, no, it it isn't. We need to remember that the law of God in the Old Testament mandated that the people of God should treat one another with kindness and speak of one another with care. Listen to these very challenging words from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 16. Says this, you shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, those words are pretty clear. They're not particularly ambiguous in any way. I think we can all agree on that. And the central call to love your neighbor as yourself, it's very widely known, isn't it? Even unbelievers are familiar with those words. So we can't claim to be ignorant of what the law of God says. But I think that what we do when we speak critically and judgmentally and so on, what we do is this. We, we reason like this to ourselves. You know, I, I hear what the law says, but my words, my comments, my criticisms, my, my insights, as I like to frame them, they come from a place of wisdom and, um, you know, m- maturity, I guess. I, I have license to say some of these things because I've got the insight to see it you know, to call it out, to offer a sage critique. It's not about being mean or slanderous, oh no, it's about just, you know, calling a spade a spade. It's about being realistic. It's about recognizing how things really are. Others may not see it, but, you know, I, I do. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the burden, it, it falls upon me 
to say the uncomfortable but the secretly rather enjoyable uh, things that need to be said. And James says, when we do that, we place ourselves in a situation where we are saying that the law does not apply to us. We are implying that the law is wrong in its prohibitions. We are, in fact, setting ourselves above the law of God. We are making ourselves little judges. And James wants us to see that doing so, doing that, is a very serious thing indeed. Doing so is the height of folly. Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? There's one judge, and we know who he is. He is the one who is able to save, save even the most flawed, even the most sinful human beings. Uh, he's able to save people like me and people like you. He's able to save the brother or sister whose failings we see and might be inclined to critique. And if he would save them, if he can save them, if he has chosen to save them, who are we to turn around then and condemn them? And at the same time, he is able to destroy the unrepentant sinner. And we don't need to go about pronouncing condemnation on his behalf. He is the judge. And so, who, who are you? Who am I to go about judging our neighbor? Now, at the end of the day, our attitude with respect to these things must be shaped fundamentally by the gospel itself. We find it so very easy to be self-righteous so easy to feel morally and spiritually superior to others. But the gospel reality is that you and I were hopeless and helpless in our sin, morally bankrupt, spiritually dead, guilty before God, the lawgiver, and the judge. And yet it was he. It was this very lawgiver and this very judge who took the initiative to save us. He sent his son to live the life that we could not live, and then to die the death that we so amply deserve. And by means of his son's death on the cross and in our place, he made it possible for people like us to be saved, to be ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And now here we stand, if we belong to him, now we stand before him, not on the basis of our merits, for we have none, but on the basis of Christ's merits, of his finished work at Calvary. Now, that's, that's, that's simple gospel truth, isn't it? But if we would simply remember that gospel truth, if we would remember where we came from, remember that we were lost and guilty, dead in our trespasses and sins, if we would remember that, we might have the humility to refrain from slander, mightn't we? From a spirit of judgmentalism from sheer unkindness of speech about others. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth with part of a message called Speaking in Humility and Faith. It's part of a series from the book of James we're calling Doers of the Word. And if you missed any broadcast in the series, a few different ways that you can listen. You can come to our website, encounterthetruth.org, and you can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen with the Encounter the Truth app. It's free. All you have to do is go to your favorite app store and search for Encounter the Truth, and then you can listen on the go whenever it fits your schedule. But whether you listen online, on the radio, or through the app, it's all made possible because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you 
by sending you a book called Know Your Enemy. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're to fight sin. But it's hard to fight sin when you can't see what's happening. It's hard to beat Satan when he's blindfolded you. And so we'd love to send you a copy of this book by Graham Bynan to help you know your enemy and know how you can engage in that battle against sin. You can give a gift of any amount and request a copy. Visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833-998-7884. That's 833-99-TRUTH. Or again, our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Back to the message. Here's Jonathan. Now, we need to recognize here that James is not issuing a blanket prohibition against the church exercising any kind of discernment nor against exercising appropriate church discipline when there is persistent and grievous sin. This is not a prohibition against us individually going to our brother or sister in humility and addressing personal sin and personal offense, encouraging a brother or sister to repent of sin that we might see in their lives. No, this isn't a blanket ban on addressing sin or exercising discernment. Here's what this is. This is a ban on slander on gossip, on an attitude of judgmentalism on a critical spirit. And so the question for us, of course, the question for us, the question for me, the question for you, for all of us is simply this, where do we need to repent? Where do we need to repent of this critical and hurtful pattern of speech? Where do we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and one another? Where do we need to ask the Lord's forgiveness and perhaps the forgiveness of brothers and sisters where we've got this wrong? And where do we need to change our attitude of heart and our manner of speech going forward? Now, I can't imagine that there is a single one of us here who is not touched in some way by this challenge, who does not feel in any way the force of this rebuke from the Word of God. None of us is perfect in this. None of us is without fault. There is wrong within this that we so easily commit and so quickly justify. And, you know, as we think on these things and talk about these things, I am quite sure that some will know immediately and some here will be feeling quite deeply that there's been what can only be described as a pattern of sin here. You see it in your own life. You know it. You know it. And you know that actually you've got to go away today and you've got to make some things right. You've got to seek the forgiveness of a brother or sister, perhaps. You've got to make things right with the Lord. Come humbly before him in repentance. You've got to seek the help of his spirit to change. And if that's you, let me say, don't let the moment pass. If the spirit is touching your heart, don't let the challenge drift away into the fog of forgetfulness as it so easily can. This is a serious matter, James tells us. Ultimately, it's a matter of submitting ourselves to the word of God and recognizing rightly that God is the judge. Now, that's our words about one another. Now for words about the future. Speak humbly about the future, James urges us, verse 13. Come now, you who say, tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. 
So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him, it is sin. Throughout the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, I've turned to these verses again and again in my mind. These have been really the theme verses of the pandemic. And I think the Lord has been teaching us their lesson in a rather powerful way through this season of unprecedented global disruption. I don't know for sure, but in the end, I do wonder if we may end up looking back on the quarter century that preceded the pandemic as a kind of golden age of global mobility. Two world wars in the first half of the 20th century had strengthened the resolve of nations to pursue peace and openness. The United Nations had been formed in 1945 to coalesce and give shape to that resolve. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 seemed to indicate that the final divide between the West and the communist world had come down. And since that time, we saw the movement of people between nations and continents and cultures increase exponentially, spurred on by pretty cheap air travel. And then COVID came. And then COVID came. And in the midst of it, renewed global tensions and divisions. And suddenly, all our plans to travel, to visit, to explore, to relocate, they were all torn up in an instant, weren't they? We went from a situation from the world being our oyster to our home being our prison. And we made that move rather quickly. Suddenly vacations were canceled. Family visits put on hold indefinitely. Business trips turned to Zoom conferences from the living room. And we discovered that our best laid plans were not worth the paper upon which they were printed. James warns us to be careful how we speak about the future, careful how we speak about our plans. He knows how easily we boast about the future. You know, next year we're going to travel here. Next month we're going to explore this place. Next week we're going to see those relatives. In the next quarter we're going to expand the company into this new territory. Tomorrow we'll visit clients there. And wealth and technology make us more confident of these things. They actually increase our arrogance, I think. Commentators note the fact that right after this discussion at the end of chapter 4, in chapter 5, James goes on to rebuke the rich for some of their attitudes and some of their sin. And it's no accident that this warning comes right before that. The rich, and by most global standards, by the way, many of us count as rich, the rich can be more arrogant, I think, in this regard. Money and security tend to enable some forward planning and some confidence about plans. But here is the bottom line reality that James highlights for us. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Jonathan Griffiths with a message called Speaking in Humility and Faith. Now, we have to pause here, but we'll continue next time. And if you ever miss a broadcast, you can come and listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is able to stay on this station and online because of your generosity. It is your giving that makes it all possible. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Know Your Enemy. And Jonathan, I think often we may recognize the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. But being a spiritual battle, sometimes it can be a struggle to know how to fight. And I think that's what this book addresses, isn't it? 
Well, that's exactly right. The aim of this book is to help us to have an understanding of the nature of the battle and the nature of our enemy so that we can fight the battle effectively in the Lord's strength. This isn't something I think that we give a lot of thought to, perhaps, uh, naturally. Maybe we don't hear a whole lot of teaching on this, but it's such an important topic because the Bible's so clear that there is an enemy of the Lord's who is an enemy of his people. And if we belong to the Lord Jesus, in a sense, we've got a target on our back. Mercifully and wonderfully, the Lord Jesus is more powerful than the enemy who seeks to undermine his work. But we need to have an understanding of what's going on so that we can flee to Christ, so that we can find help from his word and the strength of his spirit, that we might uh, resist the devil and then find that he will flee from us, which is the promise of, of God's word for us. But I think this book will be a tremendous help and a tremendous encouragement within that fight. Well, we want to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thanks for your support this month. You can give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, and our phone number is 833-998-7884. Thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.